Hi, friends, and welcome to the StoryForge podcast. I'm Lyle Smith, your host, and today we're talking with Sean Fagan uh, of Opus Performance Tours in Red Bank, New Jersey. Uh, He founded this company, created this company some 20-plus years ago, uh, where he um, creates, uh, organizes, plans, and executes tours for musical groups uh, all around the world. Uh, they they travel to Europe and Eastern Europe and South America and uh, all over the place and uh, their choruses and orchestras and uh, marching bands all sorts of musical groups and um, it really makes the groups what they are he really has a hand in helping these things these these groups become something bigger than than maybe they even envision sometimes. So it's a really exciting business to be involved in. Uh, He does great work, but as a travel and performance business, the coronavirus pandemic has hit him very, very hard. Um, But on the other hand, if you ask him, he has a lot of interesting ideas about where the industry is headed, how things are changing, how he's evolving in his own business. And um, it's an exciting conversation. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. Here's Sean. He has a trio that he plays with uh, regularly down there, was playing regularly with, with until all this craziness started happening. And he, like you, uh, you're one of, you know, um, numerous people I, I spoke to um, who are friends of mine who had um, either arts people, musicians, performers um, that all had like everything started going on, on Friday the 13th in March. That was actually, uh, that was actually the, the telltale day for me as well. Yeah. I remember we talked about it a little bit after that, cause it's, it's just like all of a sudden things changed, you know? Yeah. Um, and how are, th- how are things going now? Um, have, have things stabilized a bit, improved a bit? Well, it, uh, in all honesty, I don't think the travel business is going to improve until, until a vaccine comes around, or at right. least the, the the fairly sure uh, um, promise of a vaccine. So, right. You know, if they say, you know, Fauci has come out recently and said he's fairly confident that in the beginning of next year that uh, he can realistically see a, a vaccine, you know. Right. Well. Until that time, um, you know, no one wants to commit to anything. Right. Uh, there are businesses that are going to um, travel businesses that are going to start offer projects and stuff for 2021 right. because everyone has to. 2020 right. is lost. Right. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think looking forward to, to 2021, right, uh, in whatever form it's going to be, will be the the start the start of something better right. right now for, for my business, you know, my, my groups, um, you know, my groups work a, a year or more in advance to travel. And so we were working at groups that were going to travel in March, April, May, June, right. Uh, into July. And of course, um, the, when the first March group had to cancel on March 13th, Friday the 13th. 
um, the day of their departure, basically, when they were supposed to travel. Right. Uh, that was the beginning. And then within two weeks, every group um, either had to either canceled or postponed. You know, right. We gave an extra option. Uh, typically, the contract said, you know, if you cancel, this is the penalty. Right. But in this circumstance, um, we decided that it would be good if we could we could probably recoup more of the funds from our vendors uh, if we were to postpone. Right. So we gave that option to all, to all of our clients, and about half of them took it and half of them didn't. Right. Um, so you know we're crossing our fingers for the ones who did next year that you know, we can actually um, you know fulfill the contracts and, and, right. and travel. So, but there's no. It's kind of a weird time right now. It's well, every business has to handle these things in a different way, you know. And we're seeing this more in in sporting events too. Um, a lot of sporting, some some have canceled outright, some have postponed. Like the Ryder Cup, uh, the golf event, just um, had a had a statement yesterday that they're they're postponing it till two thousand uh, till twenty twenty one. Sure. So they're pushing it back a year, and it's it's an event that only happens every two years. So they're they're sort of able to do that without too much difficulty. But, um, you know, you wonder why, you know, why you would postpone versus uh, can't just cancel outright. But, but, you know, your description makes a little sense. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it is, um, there is a lot of leeway for vendors right now to say, we can't give you your money back. Right. But we can apply it towards, you know, towards X, Y, or Z. And, right. you know, I had that with a lot of, you know, we work all over the world, and uh, most of our groups for this year were focused on on uh, Europe. Right. And Europe, you know, they said they would carry over funds for uh, for the groups for next year. The majority, the lion's share. Right. But if they canceled outright, you know, these companies are, you know, everyone is trying to survive, and everyone right. sees and saw fairly early on that um, that travel is going to be devastated this year. And they have to keep their doors open. So, you know, I think, as you mentioned, businesses, small businesses I'm talking about, right. big businesses, you know, they get their money in from other places and, you know, hopefully not from our U.S. government. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, the small businesses, you know, everyone's trying to, to, to stay financially solvent right, right now, you know, and to be able to, to still be around when, when things open up. And they will open up. You know, travel will come back. Uh, you know, so oh, no doubt. I mean, that's one thing I say. I, I think I've said that to every single person I've interviewed on this thing so far. Is just you know, we know this is not going to last forever. Um, you know, sooner or later, there's going to be a treatment and a vaccine, and and things are going to get back to some semblance of normal. Uh, but you know, normal is not going to be what normal was before. I think, uh, at least um, in some areas. Yeah, definitely in some areas. There's there's definitely going to be some some carryover. I've seen a lot of, uh, I mean, the transition to digital is pretty remarkable. Mm -hmm. uh, what's what's been happening the last two months, and I've there are some people that you know I know of that I'm connected to overseas. A lot of them in travel have just been laid off. Uh, right. Or uh, some have been furloughed, but the majority have been laid off. And this is in Ireland, in England, in Croatia, in France, in in Sweden. You know, all over they've been. 
they've been devastated. Mm -hmm. um, and, but some of them have come back and said, you know, th we're doing something different. One of the, for example, there's a there's a guy based in in uh, Scotland, mm -hmm. and he just released. Um, he was doing festivals and. From those festivals, he was doing like short tours for groups. Okay. And I don't think he was a huge out, uh, operator, um, but his his uh, his groups completely vanished, and his yeah. work for the next year completely vanished. Yeah. And so he's pivoted to starting a website where, if you want to learn Scottish fiddle music, or if you want to learn how to play, okay, you know, so you got traditional Scottish musicians. Mm -hmm. and brought them all to a website and started virtual classes. Wow. So I've seen that. Um, I had one friend, uh, one friend who's a piano player um, based in, uh, in New York City, and he's had his own, you know, learn my piano technique or learn piano from me. He's had it for probably five years. You know, okay. I, I remember when he started it, and he's had a nice following, but he's wonderfully positioned. Yeah, because people have got time on their hands. Yep, they're sitting at home. Yeah, you know they've got access to a computer. Um, so it's gonna, it's it's really blossomed and and made people aware. So there's gonna be there's gonna be a digital a, a huge digital impact mm -hmm. for across so many different sectors. Right, and, and part of what's gonna uh, which part of what will make it uh, uh, large and consistent <laughs> is not just the the younger people who have been uh, who are digitally savvy, right? And the middle people, you know, who are you know still savvy but maybe not on the cutting edge. Right. But it's the older people too. This mm -hmm. is you know across the age range because the older people have you know uh, over the last uh, I had mentioned that I was. Uh, hosting some uh, gatherings on Zoom right. for my family, and I have a very large family. Um, for my mother's 90th, we, I was reaching out to some of her friends who were in their 80s and 90s and tutoring them on how to use Zoom and how to wow. get to their thing. And I'd be on the phone for two hours. <laughs> you know, but they're all open to it. Right. Um, and and willing to do do that and and it's because of the circumstance right uh, well it's interesting because you have that um, that need to connect is still there that need to you know you see an awful lot of um, uh, creative um, outreach from different artists and different uh, musicians singers players who are doing things online uh, even if it's a show from their their basement studio uh, that they didn't do before, but sure. people people still have a need to have it, which is really kind of encouraging, uh, even though it's it's having a, a massively negative impact on some of these small venues out there, um, and the performers and the performers. Yeah, I mean, I, I've spoken to numerous of those, uh, a few on on the podcast here, and they're just, uh, you know, they're they're, you know, some of them are are getting like ultra creative in the way they try and get out there, and some of them are are turning to other types of revenue streams and trying to diversify in a way they haven't been able to before. I have a friend who's who's actually now like making furniture and things because uh, he doesn't have yeah. any of his his you know performances to do. 
You look into your skill bag of tricks and you say, what can I pull out? You got to make it work, right? So, uh, so you have a big family. You said you're eighth in a family of 12 siblings. Yes. You have six, what is it? Six brothers and five sisters? Six brothers and five sisters. Wow. And your mom just celebrated her 90th? Just celebrated her 90th, yeah. That's fantastic. That must have been a fun Zoom call. <laughs> uh, kind of like herding cats. Yeah. I think for her 90th, we had, uh, I think someone counted. I didn't, I was playing the host, but I think we had right. 70 or 80 people on the, on the wow. call. You know, there would be families. But sure, sure, sure. But there'd be, you know, we had two pages of Zoom blocks <laughs> on the screen. <laughs> That's awesome. That's but it was awesome. fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun uh, growing up in a household like that. I would think. I, I wonder because, you know, I, um, I, I we'll, we'll get into your background a little bit because I, I find it fascinating. But the, um, how does, you know, because I'm always interested in how someone, you know, grows into creating their own business, their own living, their own way of making a living. And, um, you know, like I joke, I, I started my business. I, I didn't really have a, an entrepreneurial uh, model to follow in my life. My, my dad worked for a big corporation for a long time. My mom was a school teacher. Uh, it was my wife who is a, who is an acupuncturist and has her own business and her father, who's a veterinarian who has, you know, two of his own practices, uh, who kind of made me think, Oh boy, I, I could actually do this. I could actually have my own business. Um, how does it, how does a, a kid eighth child in a, in a string of 12, get into you know it, it's interesting you say that you know in terms of models because my my father um worked for sharing corporation which was mm -hmm. uh, i think they were took taken over by merck i think at one point mm -hmm. but at the time he was working there was sharing plow and he worked for them for about 35 years uh -huh. um, and i actually worked at the they had a program one summer where you know children of employees could enter a lottery and and uh, and work for the summer at the at right. the uh, facility. So it was an interesting summer. I commuted in <laughs> with my father on a van to uh, to work and um, worked in an assay lab for for a summer. Wow! Uh, and where, I, don't where have, was that? I don't have a scientific bone in my body. That was in Kenilworth, Kenilworth. Okay, New Kenilworth, New Jersey. Okay. Um, but you know that was as you said that was my model. My model was my father, you know, going to work for a corporation. My right. mother was a uh, a homemaker uh, raising 12 children, right. which was a, a job in and of itself. Uh, I knew that that job was not available to me. Uh, <laughs> so I, but um, I, the, the start for me, I think was, I always, um, when I got to college, I, I wanted to be involved with something. Mm -hmm. So I joined, uh, <laughs> I first joined something, uh, I tried out for something that was called the Queen's Guard at Rutgers. Okay. And it's a trick drill team, and were two guys on my floor, at, in my dormitory, who were one was the captain, and the other I, they might have been actually both the captains of the team. And they're like, "Oh, you should try out." And this is my freshman year, and so I should, sure, you know, they showed me a video, and it looked pretty cool. And they they traveled, and that was what was attractive to me. Right. I wasn't into the military and the guns and everything. Um, so it was a trick rifle team, and I tried out and went through uh, about a month of of tryouts and stuff and you know the the last day of the tryouts they said uh hey you know we're gonna 
you, you know, you're in. Congratulations. And uh, we're going to start practicing next week. And um, you'll just need to, to get a crew cut. And you know, then you're all set. <laughs> and I said, I said, what? I said, excuse me? And he said, you have to get a crew cut. And I said, I said, I am so sorry. If you had told me this at the beginning, <laughs> I would not have wasted your time. Um, <laughs> when I was growing up with, with seven boys in the family, my father was not going to go out and pay a barber to cut seven boys' hair. So we would all go to the basement, and my father would take out the, the buzzers, and yeah. he would give us all crew cuts. And, right. you know, for the first 10 years of my life, I think I had a crew cut. <laughs> So when I when I was 18 years old, the last thing I wanted to do was go back to my childhood crew cut days. Right, right. So I, I eventually decided I still wanted to be involved. Uh, unfortunately, that wasn't it. Um, and I ended up joining two things. I joined the crew team at Rutgers, and mm -hmm. I joined the uh, a choir. There was a mixed choir, and there were a couple different uh, uh, musical or organizations and uh, or choirs in at Rutgers. And one was the mixed choir. One was the glee. Club, which was quite quite famous and quite uh, had quite a storied history, um, but the choir was going to be touring the following year. I found out, and so I joined them just for that, just for the, the travel, just, for, just so I could travel. And I had sung I had sung in a choir in, in high school, mm -hmm. uh, so I joined them for that, and um, and that was the beginning actually of the the work that I'm doing. I went on a tour. Uh, the following year, we went to Poland during uh, Solidarity time when Lech Walesa and uh, oh, wow. Solidarity, Solidarity Movement. That must have been um, exciting. And we were actually in Poland the same time that John Paul II returned after he became the Pope. Wow. So we were kind of like, we would arrive to a city right after John Paul had left and it was like you know the, the you know the parade had gone the parade ended you know we were at the tail end uh, and there was like of all the papal bunting the yellow and white papal bunting was uh, uh, hanging down and you know John Paul pictures were everything and but um so that was that was my beginning with the work that I do um, and so that's how it's that's how it started so I kind of I mean I was following what I like to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, that was my introduction to the work itself. Right. Uh, so I didn't you, know it was work. I was just right. a, a travel. Yeah, I was a tour member. Right. Um, Did you start getting involved in, in the organization of all that at some point? Or? Not at that point. I mean, I, 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 I graduated from college. I had a degree in business and computers. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, and I, but I always loved languages. My, I had studied Spanish in high school and in first year of college, but I was frustrated that I never spoke it that, you know, right. it was always just studying, studying, studying. And I decided my senior year, my, my, uh, to study French, but mm -hmm. I said, if I'm going to study French. I'm going to study in right. France. Yep. So I did uh, two semesters of French. I had a wonderful teacher, Jerry Flieger, who was fantastic at dealing, at working with students, beginners who spoke French to us the whole time. And then the summer after my graduation, I studied in France for six weeks. Um, so I, I always had that interest in languages. Then I graduated, I graduated, studied French in France. I came back to the States and I worked, um, I actually worked in bartending because I always wanted to. My father killed me. You know, he was like, you got it, you have a degree. I made a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. I worked for, a, uh, I made a lot of money, worked for about a year, mm -hmm. made a lot of money, and then I decided to get a, 
a business job in my mm -hmm. field, mm -hmm. which was as an internal auditor. I hated it. And during that time as an internal auditor, I decided that I wanted to apply for the Peace Corps. So I did that when I was working at this. I worked at that internal auditing job for a year. Right. The Peace Corps told me, the, my recruiter said you need to work, um, to have more volunteer work. Okay. So I quit the, the auditing job and I went back to bartending. Mm -hmm. And I was always telling people at the time that I, I, um, I, I worked in bartending to support my volunteer habit. Um, so then I did a lot of volunteer work uh, for the next eight months, and then I got into the Peace Corps in the following uh, the following August, uh, following July. I left uh, right. Africa for two years. Wow, that but must have been before, an experience. It was, but just before I left there, because your question was about, you know, uh, how did I get into this work? Right. That's a long story to, to say. While I was bartending, and, <laughs> and, and about a month before I was to leave for Africa, um, the director of the company that did the tour when I was in college, right. and my former choir director, and a bunch of the former singers came into my bar, mm -hmm. I mean, which was kind of unusual because it was about 30 minutes away from New Brunswick, Right. came into my bar, and I was like, holy cow. I'm like, hey, how you doing? And you know, the, the president of the, the company that had taken us said, oh, what are you doing? You know, I said, well, I'm biding my time here. I'm going to the Peace Corps in a month. Right. Um, great to see you, you know, yeah. you know, very cordial. And that was that. Um, and I, he said, oh, give me your number so we can stay in touch. And so I uh -huh. gave him my number. And about a week later, he called me and he said, um, listen, I was wondering if you can take, we have a group coming in from Leningrad, Russia. Okay. It's a girls' choir, and we need someone to escort them up and down the East Coast. They're coming in, and they're going to do a, uh, a um, they're going to Vermont for an organization called Project Harmony. This is the first um, group from Russia, and they're staying in homes, which my understanding was that that was the first time that Russian kids were allowed to stay in homes in the U.S. Um, and this organization was the only organization that the State Department would allow to funnel this group from Russia to Project Harmony. Project Harmony oh. since, and even to this day, is, is much, much larger, and they've done wonderful things. Right. But that was, the, that was the first tour, and I was the tour leader for that, and took them up and down the East Coast. And I said to the director, I said, you do realize I don't speak Russian? He said, I understand <laughs> that. They have, they have, you know, they have uh, tour guides who speak Russian. Um, so it was fascinating. And so I did the two-week tour. It was a wonderful, amazing experience. And um, came back, and a couple weeks later, I left for you know, training for Peace Corps, and then I left for Africa for two years. Wow. And before I came back, a couple <laughs> months before, I wrote a letter to the director. Right. And said, hey, remember me? Right. Got any jobs? <laughs> um, and so I actually, he actually said, you know, you can interview for a job when you get back. And because uh, they had a position opening right. up, and it was a small, it, it was always a small company. It was a nonprofit, right. always a small company, and they had a position opening up. Um, and I interviewed for it like a week after I came back and got the job. So it was probably the smoothest transition. Fantastic. From Peace Corps to you know working life. Right. Uh, so that was that was my my weird way of getting into it. So it was kind <laughs> of a combination of 
of pursuing the things I like and luck, just sheer luck, you know? That's something that comes up over and over again when you talk to people about, especially people who, who have sort of an entrepreneurial spirit and have followed a path into whatever business it is they've created is these, these sort of um, serendipitous moments that, uh, you know, maybe you don't recognize them as that at the time, <laughs> but oh. you go back and look at them and you're like, wow, yeah, that was really sort of a stroke of luck there. Well, thank you. Exactly. I mean, that this, I don't even know why they were in town. Right. I, I don't even recall. I mean, I, I probably asked them at the time, but they were 30 minutes from, from Rutgers. Right. They could have gone into any restaurant. Right. You know, I, I didn't have to be working that shift. It right. was a daytime shift. You know, right. <laughs> I hated daytime shifts. You know, right. you, got, you, know you, you rarely made that much money at all. Right. You know, so they came in. So the, you know, so it was. It was just sheer, sheer luck, serendipitous, you know, fate, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah, but that, that made all the difference. That's really cool. And so did you, in that job that you got, did, is that where you worked um, with, with groups um, sort of behind the Iron Curtain? Yes, that was their, um, the organization is still around. It's called Friendship Ambassadors. Uh-huh. Um, but they, their specialty was uh, working behind the Iron Curtain. It was started right. by a gentleman named Harry Morgan, who was uh, bankrolled by DeWitt Wallace from okay. Reader's Digest. Ah. Back in the 70s, Harry Morgan um, started the, the Ambassadors of Friendship mm -hmm. um, and started exchanges between what was Romania and the U.S. It was where he started out. Right. And at one point in the, point in the 70s, um, was bringing up to 3,000 American performing groups, 3,000 individuals to Romania during the summertime. Right. So they were just overrun with Americans. In the 70s, right. the U.S. and Romania were on good terms. We liked Ceausescu at, at that point. Yeah, right. In the 80s, it got a little bit weird, um, but uh, it was pretty amazing. And, and it expanded into the rest of the Iron Curtain countries. But, yeah, for the first... For the time that I worked there, um, for the first five years, it was or six years, it was actually solely uh, um, Iron Curtain countries. Right, and it was, it was almost yeah. It's got to be interesting because they, they, I mean, it was always uh, the uh, performing arts and maybe sports were the ones that that did the exchanges coming from places that you couldn't otherwise go to. Sure. Um, you know, so sure. was, those were the things that that kind of broke those you know, crack those doors open a little bit. I remember my sister was a, was a ballet dancer from like age three and uh, she danced with a small company in my hometown and then, you know, with New Jersey ballet. And then she danced at American ballet theater uh, as a youngster wow. uh, student for a while. And, uh, but we met all and her, her teacher at our small school in, in Bernardsville, New Jersey uh, was from Romania and uh, was she from Romania? I don't recall. Anyway, uh, but she brought over all these dancers from, from Russia. So she had dancers coming in from the Bolshoi and uh, the big ballets over there to visit. And this is, it, it had become, it wasn't so much a touring company. It was just, you know, a few principal dancers would come over sure. and dance with a few, a few ballets here and there as like a, a you know, a featured artist. Uh, and then they, you know, 
stayed with us or stayed with somebody in the in the company in our town and hung out for a while and then they went back and it was really it's just a fascinating way to kind of learn about a part of the world that we didn't know much about at the time oh yeah oh yeah it's you know it's that uh, walk in the person's shoes but right. if they're sleeping in your house and breaking bed with you too that's that's certainly a way to do it absolutely the uh, the organization did most of its work was working sending groups overseas but they also did receive a lot of groups from the Iron Curtain countries and toured them through the U.S. Right. And um, there were, you know, it was some fascinating, fascinating stuff. The, the Russian, you know, the Leningrad Girls Choir was the, the group that came in right. um, that summer. But there were a lot of difference. There was, <laughs> and, you know, the, the disparity between the Iron Curtain countries and the U.S. was just so, so striking right. at the time on so many different levels, the, the socioeconomic and freedoms, et cetera. That there was a one one group from uh, I think Poland, and they were agronomists, and we did a tour for them through the U.S. And we called it after the tour. We called it the uh, the defectors tour because uh, <laughs> every city they would go to, there would be a few less, a few less, a few right. less. You know, so you would be contacting the homestay hosts in the next city and saying, you know, we need we need. Uh, we need uh, eight houses less because we lost 16 on the last one. Oh, you know? my gosh. So, you know, maybe you start with 40 and you end up with 18 people uh, on the flight home. But that was a thing. That was a thing in those days. Even the, even the big stars you had, like, I remember uh, the news covering a, a, there was a plane stuck. I want to say it was stuck at JFK. And it was one of the big male dancers. Um, Barishnikov. I think it was Goodenough. It was Alexander Goodenough, and he had he had declared he wanted to defect somehow to someone, and they then so the plane was staying. It wasn't going anywhere, and they waited till they they figured this whole thing out, and eventually he he somehow he got off the plane and became a you know a Hollywood actor. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's um you know it it was interesting even with the Leningrad Girls Choir, you know you could tell that because there was pretty easy to see who were the KGB. Right. On the tour. Oh, that's uh, funny. You know, because you would see, you know, 35 girls between the ages of, you know, 10 and 18. Right. You would have the director, Vladimir Badulin, uh, his accompanist, I forget uh -huh. her name. And then you would have two guys in their mid-30s <laughs> kind of hanging out. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, you guys are the KGB, right? You know, so um, they were the ones that were kind of that you know babysitting everyone the security detail right but i guess poland didn't have that at the time wow uh yeah i mean that's that's really interesting but that's a, that's a whole interesting thing and then you um you started your own company at age 33 yeah so this is all still a, still sort of a formative time in your life uh yeah. and well, and that, that's fascinating to me, too, because I didn't start my company until, you know, fairly recently in the last decade anyway. And I'm well, well established by that time. Uh, so, you know, the concept of starting a starting your own business at a at a, at a younger age uh, wouldn't have even crossed my mind. It was again, it was um, it was the situation. It was serendipitous. Um, I there was someone that I had done. Uh, tours for one university mm -hmm. and I had probably been on three of the tours and 
the last two tours there was, or, or the last tour I was on with them, one the tour manager for that trip, um, she and I got got along very well, and um, fast forward, you know, two years they traveled every two years, and they were looking to tour, and at that point I had left the company, mm -hmm. um, and there was a, a new director, and I didn't agree with the mm -hmm. way things were going, so I left the company, and um, was kind of between work at that point, and this this uh, young woman reached out to me and said, hey, you know, we, we want to go to Spain and Portugal, and, um, you know, would like you to do the tour, and I said, I said, you know, I'm no longer with that company. She said, yeah. I said, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm not working for them, and she said, yeah, I know, but can you do it? And I said, sure. You know, and um, that's when it was because of that that girl contacting me for that contract. Right. Um, and I formed the company. I didn't know anything about any of this stuff, so I formed the company, and I got a bank account, and you know, I did the work that I'd been doing over the last seven years. Right. I just started doing it on my own. Um, you know, and and. Yeah, did did it that way, and it was interesting. You know, I, I made an agreement with them at the time, because um, I, I wanted to do them a favor since they were just. I, I was thankful that they were trusting me. Right. <laughs> so I said, I said, listen, this isn't normally how it's done, but what I would like to suggest is that I'll arrange your tour, and I'll charge you a flat rate per person, and it was a really low rate. It was yeah. like. I mean, for, for the, the amount of work involved. Um, and I'll, I'll charge you a flat rate per person. And, um, and, then, and that, that'll be it. I'm like, okay, sure. You know, and they were, they were fine with it. Mm -hmm. But they didn't really know how it was going to work out. Well, we had a payment schedule lined up. Mm -hmm. And it came time for the, the final payment was coming up. This is probably about two months before the trip. Right. Final payment was coming up. And they... Um, I was talking to this young woman, and uh, I said, uh, she said, oh, you know, we're working on, we're doing some concert fundraising, et cetera, for the final payment. Right. And I said, actually, you don't have to worry about that. I said, I've got all the final costs. And, and we came in well under budget. And um, so you don't have to pay that final payment. And also, we're sending you a refund for an overpayment. Wow. Um, so they were just blown away by that. <laughs> That's um, a nice surprise. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, it's a lovely surprise. Exactly. Hi, here's the thing. But, um, you know, and they've been my clients ever since. You know, Perfect. So. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting because that's, that's another thing. I talk about that a lot with, with every business person I deal with, with my clients even, and, and how we're trying to communicate to their customers. This idea of trust and how trust is really just a cornerstone to everything you do when you're doing it well, I think. And uh, so this one, this first one is like, is all about trust, this little story of yours. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You know? One of the, 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 um, guy who was the president of the choir at the time <laughs> he went to he went to law school I think it's at Stanford Law School and mm -hmm. he called me up I think a year or two later and he said hey <laughs> I um I want to use you as like a case study for my law thing about the way you structured your contract and I'm like 
Okay. Is that a thing? Is, is that a good you know, thing? Or is that a good thing? A, no, really. am, I, am I the positive? Am I? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, I the, a, or the don't am do this. Am I a Kenyatta? Am I the, you know, I thought it was like a business thing, like, hey, right. here's a, don't do this. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I thought, you know, I thought, yeah, I should, that's fine. But, um, you know, I, it's interesting. A lot of times I think you can get caught up in the, the um, I'm a business and I have to look like this and look like that and do this. Right. But at the end of the day, people just want to have good work. Right. They, and they want to, you know, feel like they got a, a good deal. Yeah. You know, whatever that might mean. Right. And then if you do a good deal one time, you know, for, for, for me, it's hopefully repeat business and, and make it easy for people to recommend you to other people. It, it's right. everything, you know, it's like you, right. you want an electrician. Hey, can you recommend someone? Right. You know, do you have, well, this guy's good. He's, he, what do they say? He's fast. He's really good. Uh, his prices are good. His prices are fair. Right. You know, a lot of people, I used to think that if prices were, you know, you want to get the cheapest price, but that's not the case. You know, you right. want someone to be fair. That's what you want. You don't right. want... You don't want it to be the cheapest unless the cheapest is the best work. You know? <laughs> right, right. I mean, you don't want to be the, the discount brand uh, most of the time, but you want to be, you know, you want to feel like you're getting what you paid for, you know? Sure. Uh, Neil, Neil Gaiman, the, uh, the writer, did this speech one time. He was talking about all about how he, he got started as a professional writer and he started, you know, writing for other people and doing work for other people and whatever. And he said there were three things. Let me see if I can remember this properly. Three things he had to do. You have to be, the work has to be really good. Uh, the work has to be on time. You know, you have to live up to the promises you make. Uh, and you have to be pleasant to deal with. Right. Uh, and he said over time he discovered he didn't really need to have all three. He only needed to have two for any given client. If the work is good enough and the price is right and, and you live up to your, everything you promise, uh, they don't match. They don't mind as much if you're a little snarky if you're a jerk. <laughs> if you're, a jerk. Right. If, right. you're, if you're easy to work with and the price is right and you live up to everything, you know, they'll, they'll forgive the slipping, slipping of a deadline a little bit. Yeah. You know, so it's like, it's, it's kind of a, it's a triangle. And if you have, as long as you have two of them anchored down, the, the third will take that. care of itself. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Uh, Cause I think everybody kind of understands that too. Cause in their own life, they have to, you know, you know, if every once in a while you drop the ball on something and we all do sooner or later, um, you know, if you understand that that's part of what you're doing, we, we tend to be more forgiving. You know? Particularly if you have a, um, if you have a background with with a group, let's say right. you've done multiple things, you know, they know that you know your quality is consistent. You right. know, the McDonaldization of stuff, you know, right. people want to know that. For us, we go to different countries, and it, people want to know if they go to this next country that the experience is going to be consistent with what they've had in the past, which is hopefully right. a good experience. Absolutely. So Absolutely. it's, uh, no, I agree with that. It's interesting how it always goes back to the, the power of three. <laughs> it always, it's always kind of a magic number. It really is. But um, in your business, you deal with, um, you know, performing groups and, and tours kind of all over the world. So that has all kinds of different moving parts depending on um, 
what type of group it is, what type sure. of trip it is, where you're going, all that kind of stuff. You mentioned to me um, a while ago, we were, you were working on something in South America, which is a whole different part of the world that I've never really, I have no experience with South America at all myself. Oh, uh, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite uh, countries down there is Argentina. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we, Argentina's wonderful. The, the uh, seasons are reversed, so it's wintertime down there right now. They're moving right. into winter. Okay. Uh, crossing their fingers on that one for, with the virus. Everything sure. will shut down until September, actually. Right. Bells, et cetera, are shut down until September. Oh, wow. Um, but it's a wonderful country. It's, they had a lot of European immigrants in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's flavored the, the more cosmopolitan uh, Buenos Aires. Um, but if you, even if you get outside of the, the city, there are just some lovely, lovely uh, cities further afield. And it's such a wonderful mix of European and South American at the same right. time. Um, so uh, it, it's great. And they have a wonderful music tradition. Um, uh, there's a fantastic history for, for the region. So it's, it's a fascinating destination. And I think people are pleasantly surprised when they when they get down there, how comfortable it feels for them. Right. What are, uh, and what, what type of groups do you deal with? You're dealing mainly sort of classical groups, singing groups, choirs, uh, choral orchestras. Groups. Yeah. Choral groups, orchestras, marching bands, uh, jazz oh. ensembles. Um, so any, any performing group and they're, they're non-professional. So these are, yeah. they can range from uh, children's choirs to, uh, you know, semi-professional adult orchestras. Right. Um, so, but they're they're all looking for exchange. They're all looking to um, to be highlighted, to be featured, mm-hmm. and to play in some beautiful venues. I mean, that's yeah. and it's a wonderful because this kind of business is different than people who go on a group tour and they, you know, go on go to Italy and right. And they, you know, they look out the window and they see X, Y, and Z. Right. You know, it's like Clark Griswold. What is he? Went to the Grand Canyon. Like, okay. You know, and you get the car and like, but with the, with the performing groups, you know, there's so many opportunities. I mean, the nature of the performance alone is you are going and you're meeting other people. Right. You're going to perform. You're, you're, you're going on this tour and you are giving to people. Right. That's the big difference. So you're not going to take, 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 take everywhere you go. Wow. You're going to perform. You're going to, to, and these are free concerts 95% of the time. They're giving right. a free performance. Wow. And we'll try to connect with the local charity and say, how can this performance be a benefit to, you, to your community? And that opens up doors because no they're kidding. kind of, you know, they, they're, um, they're taken aback sometimes because a lot of times they're used to Americans coming in and saying, give me this, give me that, give me that. Right. So when you come in and you say, you know, what can we do for you? Right. Um, there, you know, it opens up doors and it opened up, opens up hearts and minds, as they say. Right. It just it shifts the whole, the whole perception of it. And yeah. uh, so they're, I mean, they're really right. And so, I mean, they're, your clients are really, you know, we, we talk about in, in marketing land, we talk about, you know, what, what is your, what does your client want? What does your customer want? And to me, it's, it's, they want an experience that they can't get any other way. Right. They are 95% of the directors and the groups. There's, let me just put aside, there's one type of director who is going for the glory. Yeah, there is. 
There's, I can name probably on one hand the, the number of directors I've come across over 30 years who, who want that. I won't Those ask you to ones, name them. Yeah, <laughs> they're the ones that are in it for themselves, right. not so much the groups, and they're kind of, you know, taking the kids for a ride, and they'll perform, you know, a concert every day or every other day and, oh, wow. and, and exhaust it, you right. know, the group. But 95% of the other directors um, and the, the travelers, the performers themselves, mm -hmm. are looking, they're looking for to sing in nice venues, mm -hmm. it historic, you know, sometimes the historic ones are not the acoustically best, to right. sing in a nice acoustic venue, to sing for an audience, and to um, maybe have exchange with another group, share the stage with someone, or to meet with someone, um, you know, have social time with them after the fact. Um, you know, and that's that's really the the that's the opportunity there, right? It, to to be able to sing for someone, to go into a community, to be able to do something for them, and then be able to social socialize with them afterwards. Yeah, to sort of make a connection. Like even go, going back to that first one where you had the the group, the girl girl singing group uh, up and down the East Coast, they were staying in homes and whatever. You, oh, yeah. they, they you you. It, it may not have been the purpose of that, but the, the, the benefit of it is that they get to make those connections with real people. Oh, it's, it's tremendous. And, and the, what can come of that, that simple interaction, because it's either, it can happen in an evening yep. at a concert, or it can happen over the course of several nights if someone is staying in a home. But I've seen directors, there was a director in the Midwest who went to, uh, to Bratislava, Slovakia, mm -hmm and met a, a music teacher there. They fell in love and they got married. <laughs> That's awesome. They're now living and raising a family in the Midwest. You know, I've seen uh, college kids go to Russia, come back from Russia and change their major to Russian studies. Wow. You know, so there's, you know, there's a, um, it, the worst case scenario is that people are gonna come away with an awareness that there are other things on the planet other than the United States. Right. You know, open up their, their perspective a little bit um you know you, you also when you're when you're overseas you come to appreciate the things that you miss about the states right and then when you come back to the states there are a couple things maybe from the other country that you're like right. you know that's kind of cool i wish we had that here right right i mean i remember um i i am not nearly as world traveled as you but i have you know i have cousins in ireland and northern ireland and and i've been to you know britain and 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 uh, Scotland and all, but the thing I always w noticed most, the thing I took away from my trips over there was always this sense of um, time and this sense of history that European cities have that we don't have here. You know, it's like, so when you go and talk about, you know, this, this old, old building, and I, I laugh here because you know, moving to Florida five years ago, we don't have the sense of history that uh, we even had in the Northeast. Sure. Um, so, you know, a 200 year old building was, was ancient. Uh, oh, I know. Where I, I know. grew up and you go over there and it's like, you're looking at millennia. <laughs> Some you know, of these buildings. And it's interesting because we, we come back with that take and we're like, oh, we love the, and it's mm -hmm. true. I mean, you, you got to love the, the history and everything yeah. else behind it. And, you know, even for, I, I, I've, uh, I toured with a, a brilliant, um, mixed choir from uh, East Tennessee State University. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and they were just fantastic. And there was a venue in Italy that we went into, and it was a very historic church, and I forget the exact venue, but it was a beautiful church. Mozart had performed there. It's like one of those Mozart had performed just about everywhere. <laughs> but Mozart performed there. And, um, you know, and that always, you know, that history always strikes me. And, and that evening I just said to them before the concert, I said, you know, just remember that you were singing in a place that Mozart performed in, you know, X amount of years ago. Right. And if you can imagine that, you know, the notes that Mozart sang are in stones in the walls and you're right. adding your voices and your notes to that same stone. So, right. you know, just to, to give a little bit of perspective. But the flip side of that is I heard from, a, a, you know, more than one person in my, my travels in Europe about how they loved the United States and they loved how things could change and you could do different things and how you could build things in different places. And they liked the dynamic of, of the states. So it's kind of funny because we, we love the solidness, the, this cathedral has been here for a thousand years. Right sort of thing and there are those in Europe who appreciate the dynamism that we have in the United States um, so you know everyone's always kind of the grass is always greener sometimes yeah I mean it's funny because it's always you know we <laughs> what is it they say change is hard for people right but you know and the other thing they say about New York City is the only the only thing you can be sure of in New York City is that things are going to change yeah. Um, you know, one building's going to get knocked down, another one's going to get built up right in its place. You know, and and even if it's something, you know, that had a history and a love and uh, and a and a fan base. Well, thank uh, you for uh, Jeff Dionassis and uh, and the New York uh, Preservation Society. Absolutely, absolutely. And some things, you know, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, um, uh, what dichotomy of of. Uh, perspective on on how to uh, maintain and capture the history and and appreciate the history of a place, and yet still be a vibrant, growing, thriving um, city, uh, yeah. or you know, and even even in businesses too. I mean, you you can't. We're talking about how we started this conversation was, you know, how how many. Um, how many people and businesses are, are are finding new ways to do things now because they have to, um, and you can't hold on. You know, if 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 it if it's ever been clear, it's it's clear now that you can't hold on to everything you've always done in the past just because you like it. You have to you yeah. have to hang on to it because it's doing. Well, you can hang on for your you know at your own peril. You well, know? that's it. That's it. You have to be able to adjust and change and grow and and all that um so what do you see what's um how how's your how's your next steps how's your future looking at the moment um i think the future listen travel is going to come around mm -hmm. um i have i have my thoughts about some ideas that i think people are people are definitely going to want to gather there's gonna be huge parties you know Absolutely. and i think that there, there is going to be a, a, whether people realize it or not, there is going to be this innate desire to gather together um, in a large way. And I'm not talking just family gatherings or seeing your friends. It's just um, uh, gathering together. The, the, what this virus has done for group performances, and in this case I'm talking about 
um, bands and orchestras and, and choirs particularly, um, it's made everything virtual, right? which doesn't work by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and all of these directors are, are kind of facing this existential crisis of, you know, we can't gather together as singers. I can't teach a group together. Um, and, and so when people can do that, you know, this is, you have to imagine that since March, going through most likely until possibly even June of next year, people will not be allowed to join together to sing together. Right. Choirs will not be allowed to sing together. Right. You know, orchestras will not be allowed to play together unless you have some crazy little cocoon thingy going on. Right. Um, so there will be a huge need for that. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we are social animals. And, um, you know, there's going to be a huge need for it. And I think the first step for me is to figure out what kind of a, you know, to set up a, an opportunity for people to get together to sing, in, right. you know, and, and to make those arrangements. The question is timing. And the question is, you know, what genre of group, you know, choirs are a lot of different types, et cetera. So that's well, always right. the thing. It, it's, and it's a, as far as timing, that's a, you know, everyone's best guess. Well, right. I mean, there's that. But I think, I think you're right. You're hitting on something really interesting there in that I, I, I think because of the time we've had without it right now and name, you know, I mean, your, your specialty is one type of music, but any kind of music, any kind of performance. Uh, I talked to a friend who's a costumer on Broadway and they, they still don't know what's going on there. Um, that when we do get back to a, a space and a time when we have, when we experience an event like that, a performance like that, it's, we're going to have a whole new energy uh, where we're reminded why we liked it in the first place. Yeah. You know, and, why, why that was important to us in the first place. And I think there will be those who, um, who maybe weren't the biggest fans of a live performance you know, I'm not a huge concert goer as far as you know, non-classical. Right. I'm not a huge concert goer, but I had tickets for to go to the PNC Art Center right. in August, and probably the first concert I'd done in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I was disappointed. You yeah. know, it was kind yeah. of. Um, so I think there will be those who, maybe even weren't regular concert goers, who will be leaning a little bit towards going to a concert you right know, because that because they we've been isolated for so long and it's just unnatural right you know right right so I, kind of you know when you you veer in one one end of the scale or the one swing of the pendulum veers mm -hmm. dramatically in one end mm -hmm. it's going to swing dramatically in the other end and it at least initially on yeah the return. absolutely Absolutely. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to that, honestly, <laughs> when, yeah. when we can go do these things and feel safe about it. Yeah, no, um, I agree. You know, agree. I, yeah. So, hey, thanks so much. Uh, I have a whole list of other things I want to talk to you about, but um, we'll get to those another time. <laughs> you bet. Well, thanks, thanks for uh, having me.
Hey, absolutely. It's, it's a, it was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. And uh, good luck with everything. And, uh, you know, stay in touch, stay safe, take care of your people. <laughs> I will do. I will do that. Same to you. All right. So that's Sean Fagan um, with a business that's been really hard hit these days, but is looking forward and looking up and looking out. Uh, and I find his perspective to be pretty inspiring to me. Uh, I hope you guys did too. I hope you enjoyed it. Be safe out there. If you find yourself enjoying the StoryForge podcast, please give us a review at Apple Podcasts or we're on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps others find the show and hopefully enjoy it as much as you do. All recording, editing, and executive producing tasks are handled by yours truly, Lyle Smith of NimbleSmith, the content marketing agency. This podcast would not be possible without the sincerely excellent help of our friend and associate producer, Anthony Sergi, who produces numerous podcasts, including the truly excellent A Guest in the House about all things hip-hop. The music on the podcast was provided by Jody Nardone and the Jody Nardone Trio, Lights Will Guide You Home album. And if you'd like to send us questions or feedback or suggestions for other subjects or guests, you can reach us through the StoryForge website. That's thestoryforge.com, all words separated by hyphens. Or you can email us at cheers at nimblesmith.com, spelled N-Y-M-B-L-E-S-M-I-T-H. Thanks very much. Thanks.